0: So last weekend I was, I wasn't here, I was at a work conference. Um, But usually a work conference for me is quite boring. I don't know how your work conferences are, but for me a work conference is quite boring with lots of discussions about the stock market, how's the Dow doing, what's the valuation of the S&P, like all kinds of things that probably nobody outside of me cares about. But this particular conference was actually something that a client invited me to attend, so it was, you know, it was their, their business, if you will, um, and their business is college ministry on campuses. Um, and with my background in campus ministry, I, I, you know, I thought it was great. So they brought in 1,500 of their staff from all over the country, and they brought them into Orlando, and they had sessions on everything from worship to preaching to learning how to plant Bible studies on college campuses, and it, it was extremely fascinating, but well, probably my favorite sessions were the ones that were on prayer. Um, and I literally heard testimony after testimony of, after testimony of God working through people's lives through prayer. And so, you know, some had stories of miraculously raising their support because all these 1,500 staff raise their own support. So some just had stories of miraculously raising their support. Um, They talked about, you know, family and friends they've been praying for, college kids they've been praying for for a long time who finally came to faith in Christ. Um, One group actually took their spring break and went from North Carolina to New York and kind of crisscrossed around the Northeast or up the East Coast to the Northeast, stopping at college campuses to pray. Like, these are college kids, and they went, and that's how they spent their spring break. Probably different, I wasn't walking with Jesus. But my spring break looked much different back then. But, you, you know, they, they went and crisscrossed up and just stopped at random, no affiliation with these colleges, just stopped at random college campuses so they could pray. And I, you know, I left there, I was like, I was blown away. It was, it, was, it was challenging, like, not only by what God was doing, but just hearing these students and their passion for prayer. You know, it was the drive home from Orlando. You know how that is. It can be like nine hours sometimes. But so as I'm driving home, I'm I'm like thinking about all this, contemplating the wheels are turning. And I'm like, it just really made me question my life. It made me question, you know, whether I truly believe in the power of prayer. Like, do I believe that? And I know it sounds like a dumb question because if I asked you, almost everybody in this room would say, of course I believe in the power of prayer. Like, I know God works. I know he moves in people's lives. But, you know, so probably the better question is, and this is the one I asked myself: Does your life demonstrate that you believe in the power of prayer? Because you can say it, but if you don't pray, then you don't believe it, right? I mean, we, well, I say it all day long, but if I don't actually pray, then do I really believe what I just said? And so that, man, that's what I was I was going through in my mind. And I just got thinking about people I knew who were praying, you know, people who prayed and how God had moved. And it was it was just it was encouraging. It was challenging. It was convicting. I remember back in two thousand eleven. I met a, a pastor named Raju, and Raju was a pastor in India, um, and we were introduced, there's, he is with his wife and his kids, and we were introduced because he wanted someone to come alongside him and help him with the Word. Like, he'd never been to seminary, he just said, look, I need, I need help with the Word, can you come alongside and teach? So that's what we did, and obviously, I don't live in India, um, so we would meet once a week through Skype it would be, let's see, it it was night for me, it's about a 12-hour difference. It was night for me, it was morning for him, and so we would would connect, and I'd come alongside and we'd walk through basic theology. And I'll never forget the first time we met, our first meeting. I was like, well, you know, we got done through the introductions, and I was like, well, tell me about your church, the church that you pastor, and tell me what you're currently going through. And he said, well, each week we go through a couple verses, and then we just spend most of the time in prayer. And I was like, you know, coming from the American church, I was like, okay, so tell me about this. Like,
1: you know, what are, what are you teaching? How long do you spend it? You know, not that I didn't think it was a legitimate approach, but I just wanted to know more about it. And he said, well, on my house, because his house was in his neighborhood and, you know, it was a house church. So they, the church literally met in his house. He had a sign on his door that said house of prayer. So everybody who walked by, you know, India is a very walking community, little mopeds and stuff. So, I mean, it's not like they were flying by on cars. I mean, everybody who went by knew, okay, this is a house of prayer. And he said, at 530, every day, my doors are opened and anybody can come in and pray. And I'll pray with them and kind of teach them how to pray and stuff like that. And he said, usually about 100 people come every day. I was like, okay. So you have a prayer service in your home every day for a, and a hundred people come. And I said, how did it get that big? And he says, well, because people would pray and then their prayers would be answered. And then other people would hear that their prayers were answered and then they wanted to come pray because Hindus love, I mean, they're, they're really good about praying. They're just not praying to the one true God. So they, they're a praying culture. And so they would hear about these, okay, well, wow. And so then they would come to the house and just kept growing, kept growing and kept growing. And so he's done telling me, I'm like, okay, so here's the deal. I'm going to teach you theology, and you're going to teach me how to pray, because because clearly I need something. And so that's that's honestly what we did. We kind of walked through everything. So the Lord, he used that. We, did, we, met, we met together. The Lord used that. He used it to shape me and to, to teach me the importance of prayer. And one of the coolest things was every time we wrapped up, we'd be going through prayer requests at the beginning, um, and we would pray. And he would pray in his native language, which was Hindi. And during those five minutes of him praying, I had absolutely no idea what he was saying, obviously none but it it was it was fascinating because the sound of him crying out to the Lord on my behalf was incredible because i wasn 't focused on the words like there was inflections in his voice you could you could tell he was crying at times like the the passion and the prayer like the passion and the way this guy approached the Lord was And I couldn't even really see him. I mean, our Skype connection was horrible half the time. So most of the time it was like a conference call. And so, but I could tell without understanding the words, I could hear how passionate he was about prayer. And when we, we developed a really good friendship through that. And so much so that during one of our meetings, he asked me if I would come to India and baptize his daughter. So I did. And it was crazy. Um, I remember riding on the back of a motorcycle. That's the daughter that we baptized. That's Raju. Um, I remember riding on the back of a motorcycle and we're riding from his county. You know who I was holding on to some church member or church, pastor or something. And I'm holding on the back of probably no helmet, nothing. Just, I mean, we're bouncing along through the roads and it's like people in the fields doing work. I mean, it's just like, like my mind couldn't comprehend everything I was seeing. And we get down to the river and I mean, their, their rivers are you know, not known to be the cleanest. So this is where we baptized. And we pull up, and I'm like, okay, is there a space where there's not garbage? Like, where do we get in? And I didn't say that, but um, it definitely went through my mind. But that's that's where they did He's like, we don't have swimming pools. We don't have baptistries in our church. Like, this is, this is the only body of water around, so this is where we baptize. I was like, all right, let's go. So we went in, and when we were in the water, there was, like, kids— you know, kids playing around, splashing water. I mean, everybody would come over to see what we were doing, and there's garbage floating by. At one point, a cow literally came into. We baptized like three people, and I, I'm not even. I'm not even lying. A cow kind of wades over to see what we're doing, and one of the pastors turns around and like slaps it. It's like, get out of here, and so it just kind of moves off. And like, even to this day, it's probably been five years. Even to this day, it's surreal. Like, it's. I wish I could take the images and put them on a picture because I, you know, from what's in my mind. Um, and then a few months ago, so, you know, we would communicate every so often over these last five years. And then a few months ago in November, I got a text in the middle of the night and it just, this is all it said, but Shale, I just wanted you to know that pastor Raju died last night in his sleep. He was 42 years old. And it, you know, when I, when I got that text, I'm reading, I'm like, really? Like, really, Lord? Like, you know, I'm, I'm just processing it. hit me kind of hard. And at first I was like, why? Like, why would you take my friend for one? But, you know, in my mind, more importantly, why would you take a pastor who so many people depended on? Like in that community, he was literally like the one, in my mind, <laughs> the one beacon of light. So this is what's going through my mind. And I felt like the Lord said, you know what? Raju may no longer be here, but he taught his church to rely on me through prayer. They don't need him. They need me. And all he did for five to seven years is teach them to communicate with the God of the universe. And it got me thinking, you know, I was like, wow, could that be said about me? Could that be said about you? You know, you live your life in such a way where if you're gone, somebody's like, all they did is point me to Jesus. They spent their life showing me who he was. So when he wasn't here, she wasn't here. It, I mean, there was a void, there was a pain, but I always knew it was all about God. Like my 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 lifeline, my my joy, my peace, my satisfaction was all about him. Over the next 6 months we're going to start walking through the book of Acts. You know, we preach verse by verse, book by book. We just got done almost a year in 1st and 2nd Samuel. We usually rotate Old Testament, New Testament. So we're going to start going through the book of Acts. And when the book opens, the disciples find themselves in a very similar situation. Their leader, their shepherd, their pastor, if you will, Jesus, has died. He came down to his creation. He walked among them. He cared for them. He loved them. He hung on a cross. It's the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And then three days later, he rose again. And there's this period of about 40 days between the resurrection and when he ascends into heaven. And when we, when we find ourselves in Acts chapter 1, that's where we are. We're in the middle. We're between the resurrection and we're between the ascension. And if you're putting yourself in the shoes of the disciples and those who followed him, there's probably confusion, there's frustration, there's, there's questions. There's, you know, they, just, they, don't, they don't know what's going on. There's fear. But but here's the thing, the disciples are clinging to a very similar promise. They're clinging to the fact that Jesus told them the Holy Spirit is coming. The Comforter is coming. Jesus is going to be with them, although it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. He actually tells them that. There's this, there's this passage in John 13, 14, 15, 16, and then 17 is the high priestly prayer. But in the book of John, he's telling them all about the Holy Spirit. I mean, literally saying, verse 14, this is what's going to happen. They're going to know you by your love. The you know, Here's a new command that you love one another, and I'm going to send the comforter, and he's going to do this and this and this. And so he's walking through. And at one point during that discourse, in, in verse 7 of chapter 16, Jesus tells them, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Have you ever thought about the fact that it is better to have the Holy Spirit inside of you than to have Jesus walking beside you. Like it, it is better. Jesus is the one that says it, not me. It is better to have the Holy Spirit inside of you than it is to have Jesus walking next to you. And it's so hard to fathom, but I think over these next six months, God is gonna use the book of Acts to change us. Like to change you, to change me. I think help us realize like what it really means to rely on the Lord, what it really means to walk with the Lord, what it means to be on mission as a church family. If we throw that word out there, oh, we're on mission together. Well, are we? And I think the Lord's really going to show what it means to be a church who's focused on him, who relies on him, and who's on mission together. As a little background, as before we dive in, I'm not going to give you my traditional... 20-minute timeline going all the way from Genesis because most of you know the New Testament. So little background, Acts is written by a, a Gentile physician named Luke. And Gentile just means basically someone who's not a Jew. And interestingly, Luke is the only Gentile author in the entire Bible. And one of the qualifications for having your, your letters or your books included in Scripture in the New Testament is that you had to be either called by Jesus himself to be a disciple, so you were walking with him daily, or be a close companion of somebody who was called. And Luke meets that qualification because he was a close companion of the apostle Paul. And Paul wasn't one of the original disciples, but in Acts, I think it's chapter nine, there's clearly a call from Jesus on Paul's life where he says, you are gonna be like, you're gonna do this for me. So that's, that's where Luke meets this criteria. And as was the case with almost every New Testament book, it's a letter. Actually, it's the second of two letters that Luke writes to a man named Theophilus, the gospel of Luke being the other letter. And we don't know much about Theophilus. Most scholars think he was a leader in the early church. He was a Gentile leader in the early church. And the, I think the benefit for us is the fact that Acts is written to a Gentile because 99% of this room is Gentiles. And so he's writing in a language that's very clear, very plain. It doesn't bring a lot of kind of Jewish culture, Jewish tradition, although we will deal with some of that. I mean, there's a lot of application. There's a lot of things for you to take away. I mean, you're, you're not going to leave here. Every chapter is going to be something you're like, okay, well, that hurt a little bit. Like the Holy Spirit like, prods and pokes and says, come on, we're going we're to do this together. So if you open to Acts chapter one, we're going to go ahead and dive in. Acts one one. In this first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So he starts this book, and we're not going to stop at every verse, but I think this is important. He starts by telling Theophilus kind of his intent for writing this new letter, which is we title the Acts of the Apostles. Okay, he says, my first book, which we know is Luke and don't miss this, be, dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Anytime there's something that began, then there's something else that's continuing. So he says, everything he began to do and teach. Acts is what Jesus continues to do, but this time it's through the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and you could really summarize Luke by saying, the acts of God displayed in Jesus. And you could summarize Acts by saying, the acts of God displayed through the Holy Spirit, because both letters are all about the work of God. And that's that's really important because now instead of being displayed through Jesus, the work is being displayed through the Holy Spirit through followers of Christ. And that's important. The Holy Spirit works through followers of Christ. Like God's plan for taking his gospel to humanity is people that are filled with the Holy Spirit, that are taking that message to humanity. God doesn't have a billboard somewhere, or a speech, or a a TED Talk. I mean, we are his hope for humanity. Holy Spirit-empowered, filled believers taking his word. I think it's important because as we read through this, the disciples are going to do some really impressive things. And I don't want you to think that it's the power of the disciples that's doing this, because then you're going to think, like, well, that could be me. I could never take the gospel there. I could never do this. It's not true. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're seeing him work through the apostles. So Theophilus is getting this letter. I, I, I can't imagine Theophilus was around during those 40 days where Jesus was appearing between the resurrection and the ascension. So in verse three, Luke gives him just a little recap of what has happened. Verse three, he presented himself alive, talking about Jesus, And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. So it's, it's, it's very hard, I think, for us to fathom what must have been going through the mind of the disciples when Jesus appeared to them during those 40 days. I mean, this is their leader who they, they know was crucified, rose again, but he's no longer with them 24-7. You know, during his two to three years of ministry... They were together all the time. I mean, some of them had families, so they, I don't know that they were 24-7, but they, I mean, literally, Jesus was with them, and now he's just appearing to them at various times. And at one of these meetings, obviously, Jesus said, I need you to go to Jerusalem and wait. Don't go doing it on your own. Don't go telling people I've risen from the dead. Just wait. That, that's what you need to do. Wait for the Holy Spirit. I mean, how's that for final instructions? And it's such an interesting command because their tendency, our tendency, for that matter, is just to start doing things. We hate waiting. Actually, I don't know about you. I hate waiting, all right? I won't won't speak for you. I mean, I don't care if it's, you know, you're thinking about over your life. I don't care if it's the right relationship, the right job. I don't even care if it's waiting for your coffee at Starbucks or waiting for your waiter to bring you something. We don't live in a waiting culture. And unfortunately, that even is when it comes to ministry, right? Okay, Lord, let's just do something. Let's just go do something. Let's just start this ministry. And, you know, about halfway through, especially if things aren't going the way we thought they were going to go, we're like, all right, God, maybe I should ask you what you think, right? I know I didn't pray about this in the beginning. I know I didn't seek your wisdom, your guidance or anything. I'm just going to do it. And then, you know, if it doesn't work out, well, okay, let's bring the Lord. And Lord, what should we do with this? And Jesus looks at him and says, don't do anything without me. Why? Because you can do nothing without me. Do you think that's true in your life? You can do nothing without God. I mean, you can do things. You can do nothing that is kingdom-minded, let's say, that's going to have eternal value in the kingdom unless God is a part of it. Now, sometimes you're going to jump into things where you didn't trust him, and he's still going to come and work because that's just who he is. But, but God needs to be a part of it. So they went to the upper room and they waited. On a scale of one to 10, how willing are you to wait? This is rhetorical. I wouldn't want to embarrass anybody. On a scale of one to 10, how willing are you to wait for the Lord? And I don't necessarily mean time. I mean, how well do you trust that He has your best interest at heart? Because the reason we don't wait is because we don't trust. Right, the reason we don't wait is because we doubt Him, Lord. I, I I know I should trust You in this area, and I know You'll eventually provide. But I'm tired of waiting, so I'm going to go ahead and do things the way I think they should be done. Have you been, Have you been there? Or is that just me? Somebody's laughing. I can hear it. So at least one, at least two of us. That's happened to before. All right, where does God factor into your daily decisions? Do you just save the big stuff for Him, or does He get the small stuff too? Like, this is, what, this is what the disciples do before they take a step. Lord, Lord, Lord. I mean, it's just like, you can only imagine what it must have been like. They're walking with him there. And so I just want to make sure, speaking from my own, you know, this is confession. I don't, I don't operate like that. The things that I can do that I think God has gifted me in, a lot of times I just do them. And sometimes you do just got to do things because you've been waiting around too long. But the things where I feel like God's gifted me, let's just do it. If I get in a little trouble, then I'll, then I'll ask him. I mean, the things where I know I have absolutely no skill whatsoever, I have no problem giving those to the Lord. I have no problem crying out for help because I know I can't do them. And what I fail to realize is he wants to be part of all of it. He may have gifted me in things probably because he wants me to use those things for his glory, which means I should probably reach out to him even more. And so my tendency is just not to do that. What, what would you think of the disciples if they hadn't waited? What if they just immediately left Jerusalem, traveled the world, sharing the gospel? I mean, of course God would honor that, right? They're sharing the good news. But even in carrying out the work of the Lord, he knew what they were going to do. And he told them to wait because he knew they couldn't do it without him. And even in ministry, even in Bible studies, even in small, even in the church, we have to depend on the Lord because he is the one who has the power. Verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The mission statement of the book of Acts, you will receive power. And what's the purpose of the power? And you will be my witnesses and a witness especially in our, I think our legal system, it paints such a clear picture because a witness is called to testify about what they've seen. And that's exactly what the Lord's calling them to do. All I want you to do is testify to what you have seen, right? But the word, you know, it carries, when you think about witness, it carries such a deeper meaning as well because a witness with questionable character has no credibility on the stand. They get ripped to shreds when they testify. You know, even if they really did witness somebody commit a crime, nobody believes them because their character is questionable. So when Jesus says, go, go be witnesses, I want you to understand that the command is so much more than simply speaking. When he says, go be my witnesses, you are representing me, not only by testifying to what I've done, but you represent me with your life, your actions, your character. Why? So the people will believe you right? If you're taking advantage, if the disciples are out taking advantage of people and stealing things and doing all this kind of stuff. Oh, by the way, there's a God who came, you know, I mean, nobody's going to believe him. So that's what he's saying. Matthew 5 says this, this is Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven. Your good works aren't to glorify you. They're to point people to the father. You ever seen one of those movies where the lawyer is trying to keep the witness out of trouble? Like they're just, they have this propensity to, you know, trying to keep them sober, trying to keep them out of trouble. They keep disappearing and doing their own thing. And half the plot of the movie is them trying to find this witness so they can put them on the witness stand at the end of the movie and, you know, keep them out of trouble. I, I, I'm sure we've all seen movies like that. And I feel like that's how the Lord feels about me, right? It's like, all right, really? You're going to go do this again? Really going to go do this again? Like you're going to do this and this and this. And I, I feel like that's, but here's the deal. That's why he gives you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the key. The Holy Spirit is what's important because it's Jesus actually living through us. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's the thing. If you find it difficult to be a witness, be encouraged that he does all the work. When you rely on him, He's the one that does all the work. He puts you in situations. He helps you to love people. I mean, that's not human nature. Loving people in the way Jesus loves people is not natural, right? Our, our fallen, this fallen world, our fallen flesh, just, I don't want to do that. I'd rather just be selfish. And the Holy Spirit is the one that helps you do that. And we, we walk with him and he empowers us to be witnesses. Where? It says, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Now, if I'm a disciple... And I'm getting that command, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We've, we've heard it at so many missions conferences. I fear that you don't understand the impact of what it must have been like for them. Because Jerusalem is where Jesus had just been executed. And the authorities are all mad. But you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea Judea was a place where earlier in Jesus' ministry, it straight out rejected Nobody in Judea wanted anything to do with Jesus, but you're going to go there too. And Samaria, I mean, you know how the Jews viewed the Samaritans. It was a bunch of half-breed, impure sellouts is literally what they thought of the Samaritans. But you're going to take it there too. And to the ends of the earth, the ends of the earth is where the Gentiles lived. It's where the Romans lived. I mean, we're, we're talking the same time when, when Nero is emperor of Rome. That's where the Gentiles lived. And you're telling me I'm going to take your gospel and be a witness in Rome? Like to the ends of the earth? Like that, to me, that doesn't even, it doesn't even make sense. And not only that, there's no airplanes. There's no maps to speak of. So, I mean, this is probably what is going through their mind when Jesus says this. And before they can ask any questions, he ascends into heaven. Verse 9. Well, because he wanted to rely on the spirit. All right. So verse nine, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Now I can promise you, if I'd witnessed that, I've been doing the exact same thing. I don't know how long they just stared up at the heavens, stared at the clouds as Jesus leaving. But I mean, it's just, it's probably long enough where eventually two angels appear and said, guys, didn't God give you something to do? Like men of Galilee, why are you just sitting here? Go to Jerusalem. Basically, why are you standing here looking into heaven? Go wait for the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying. And then he lists all the disciples, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, Simon, Judas, the son of James. Verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. It kind of paints the picture of who's in the room. The disciples, there's quite a few other people, but they kind of name the the, kind of the main folks who are there. The disciples, Um, maybe some of their family members, we don't know. And then it says, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus's earthly brothers were there. It's our first glimpse of the church. All right, now, technically, you could argue they're not the church till the Holy Spirit comes in chapter two, but this is our first glimpse of the church. And Luke says this, they were all of one accord, one mind. Don't miss that. Do you think that's important? Do you think a body of believers should be of one mind. Now, that doesn't mean you can't think for yourself. It just means you're unified around one purpose, one goal, being witnesses to the greatest story that was ever told. So let me ask you a question about Creekside Church. This is very rhetorical. Do you think we are unified around that goal? Making the name of Jesus known, being witnesses. When you look at your life, do you think, you know, not only our church, but you individually? Because truthfully, in order for a a church to have one purpose, obviously a church is made up collectively of its members. So whatever the members are, that's what the church is. So individually, do you have the same purpose? Notice he doesn't say most of them were of one accord. I almost changed it in there just to see if you'd catch it, but. Now, most of them were of one accord, devoting themselves to prayer. But it doesn't say that. It says all of them were of one accord. So over the next six months, as we walk through Acts, we are going to challenge you to make an assessment. Because what drives you personally drives us corporately. Because we are collectively Creekside Church. If you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. If you're you know, if you're walking with Jesus, encouraging people, sharing your faith, it's contagious. You walk in here, people are like, "Man, I'm nowhere near where that person is, but I, but I I I want that. Like I can sense the Holy Spirit moving and working. And trust me, there are days, weeks, even months sometimes where I don't feel like I want anything to do with that. But then you see God put someone in your life who's like that, and they they're challenged, they're sharpening you, so that you want to become more like Christ. And so. You know, for us, the flip side is if you have somebody coming in who's bitter and angry and complaining all the time, it's kind of contagious as well. And that's really not what we want to be. So the question for you is what drives you? What are you devoted to? They were devoted to prayer. What are you personally devoted to? What do you talk about when you're at work, when you're home? What do you, you know, what, what does your time with your friends look like? How about your extracurricular activities? How do you spend your free time? And I'm, trust me, I'm not saying that every conversation you ever have has to be about Jesus. I'm not saying every place you ever have you go would be church related because if that was the case, you'd never meet anybody who didn't know Jesus. Like we're supposed to be in the world. We're supposed to be witnessing. We're supposed to be caring for people and loving people. But sometimes if we're not careful, weeks can go by. And besides this hour right here really hasn't been a whole lot of Jesus. Does that make sense? I mean, I've been there. I I, I understand. And if I'm not careful, I, I still go there. So when you get together with people from Creekside, do you ever pray? I know it's awkward. Hey guys, before before we go, is there anything I can pray for you about? And everybody kind of looks at the, the room. What are we doing here? I thought this I thought the prayer meeting. I thought the prayer meeting was Wednesday night. Like why are we, why are we doing this? But why would we not? You know why why would we not? reach out to the creator of the universe. And Luke says they were devoted to prayer. Anytime I think of someone who's devoted to prayer, there's like one person that comes to mind, George Mueller. Probably doesn't come to your mind, but anybody ever heard of George Mueller? Um, So George Mueller lived in England during the 1800s, basically lived the entire century, basically like 1805 to 1895. And he ran a bunch of different ministries, but he's best known for his orphanages. So, you know, if you were an orphan in the 1800s, life was very tough. I mean, you lived in workhouses, you lived on the streets, and the likelihood of being adopted was like non-existent. So Mueller started an orphanage, and over the course of his life, he cared for 10,000 orphans. Sometimes his orphanages would have more than 2,000 orphans at a time. Stay in this orphanage, right? And it's a, I think You know, when you're working with kids, obviously you need they're not out working, so you need donations, you need resources. And that's kind of what makes his story unique because he never told a single soul about the needs of the ministry. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing that. We tell you about Creekside Church's needs all the time. But this is the way George Mueller approached what he was doing. He never told anybody about the needs except the Lord through prayer. And he would write his prayer request in a little journal. And then next to each request, he would write the date and the time when the request was answered, and there is documented proof through his journals of over 50,000 answers to prayer, fifty thousand answers to prayer, thirty thousand of them which were answered on the same day or even the same hour in which he prayed them. Like to me, it's just let that sink in what was all said and done at the end of his life, not including food donations, furniture donations, just monetary donations. In today's dollars, the orphanage saw more than $500 million come in. And he never told anybody about the needs. Like it was, I mean, just prayer, prayer, prayer. prayer. I mean, it's mind-blowing. But it's a, I think it's, it's, it's a phenomenal challenge because what if we, as Creekside Church, devoted ourselves to prayer? Like one of the reasons we're doing this week of prayer is because we desperately want to be a church. That cries out to the Lord. You know, we're doing it. We're meeting Sunday night, Wednesday night, Friday night, but we want you to be in prayer to, Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Like we literally want this to be a week of prayer. And next week or next year, it's probably going to go a little longer. Next year, it's probably going to go a little longer. Like we'd like to get to a, like every January, have just a month of prayer. Maybe where we're not all gathering together corporately, but where we, like, that is how we start the year. That is what's most important to us, because if you wanna see God perform miracles, you pray. I remember Carrie Anderson got in his motorcycle wreck, I think it was last year, actually, 2018. And I mean, he's one of the guys who plays the banjo up here. And I mean, I tell you, day one, we went to the hospital, not one person thought he was gonna make it. 30 days in, not one person thought he was gonna make it. 60 days in, Most people didn't think he was going to make it, but there was a group of people that were praying and praying and praying and praying and praying. And he's back up here playing the banjo. Like that's a miracle. And I wonder what would have happened if not one person prayed for him. If not one person prayed, like there is power in prayer. And sometimes those prayer requests aren't answered the way we want them to be right? I mean, it's, that's life. We've been through that, but God is in control and God knows what he is going to do in his sovereignty. You want to see lives changed? Pray. You want to see people come to faith? Pray. It's the only way. Can you imagine walking into that upper room where those 120 people were gathered and hearing the prayers of that room? I promised you, you'd walk out a different person. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus, in there praying. You have his brothers, who, by the way, didn't even believe in him until after the resurrection. The disciples, they're all just crying out, Jesus, help us, guide us, lead us, help us to be patient. Help us wait. He told us to wait. Help us wait. Help us to trust you. And, and that's how we pray, asking for guidance, asking for wisdom. One of the people in the upper room was James, since his brothers were there. James, who wrote the book of James, is the half-brother of Jesus. And so when he writes his New Testament book of James, he talks a lot about prayer. And part of me wonders if when he's writing, he's not reflecting back, not only on his own unbelief during the life of Jesus when Jesus was here on earth, but also some of the struggles he had like during that time. If you read James 1.5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man unstable in all his ways. And no doubt James probably thought he was a double-minded man because for such a long time, he didn't even believe that Jesus was who Jesus said he was. I mean, in fairness, it was his brother. You know, if your brother said he was the Messiah, you'd probably wonder too. Um, James 4, a couple verses later, this is what he says. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You see, George Mueller didn't ask for $500 million so he could buy a mansion. He asked for daily provision for the orphans that were under his care. And boy, did the Lord provide. Does that make sense? So James is saying, look ask in the same vein of what you, what you need for the ministry God has given you. And that's what, that's what Mueller did. So personalize it. You got a big decision on the horizon. You got a small decision on the horizon. Do you want to know what God has to say about it? Pray. Big financial purchase, small financial purchase, pray. Marriage concerns, dating questions, pray. Job issues, should we move? Should we not move? What's happening? Pray. Ministry dreams, we feel like God's taking our ministry here, taking our ministry here, pray. Because guess what? God cares about all those things. Sometimes we think God didn't really care what I do here. God didn't really care what I do here. Like this is my secular life. This is my work life. I'm here to tell you there's no divide. There's no sacred secular divide. It's the same lenses that we look at all of life through with gospel lenses. So cry out to him and he'll give you wisdom, which brings us to the final Piece of the passage, which I'm going to read all in one shot. They have a decision to make. So they're all in the upper room. They have to replace Judas. Judas was a traitor, 30 pieces of silver, and they want him replaced. They're finding the 12th disciple again. Verse 15, in those days, Peter Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akadama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. Verse 21, so one of the men who have accompanied us, so Peter's basically saying, look, someone who has been with us since the very beginning needs to be a replacement because we're all going to be out sharing the gospel. We just want somebody for this first little group to have seen the whole thing. There were a lot of people who traveled with Jesus. There were 12 disciples, but there was a group of people that were all the way back from the very beginning when there was baptism, when Jesus was baptized, there were people who they're all the way to the resurrection. And so Peter's basically saying, we need one of these people. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph and and Matthias, and they prayed and said, you Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So casting lots seems a little weird. When I first read that, I was like, seriously? Like, out of all the things the Lord's doing here, then we cast lots. But here's the deal. I mean, obviously, there are are things in this book, just for the record, that are going to be descriptive. They're telling you what is happening amongst this group of people. And there will be things in this book that are prescriptive. They're actually commands for us to do. And we'll walk through those as we're going. Casting lots is not the way we're going to find our next deacons. Okay? Casting lots is not the way we're going to find our family pastor. Like that's, but that's what they did. It was very common in the Old Testament. Now, keep in mind, these guys didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. Right? So there was this conviction, this prompting, this guiding, this leading hasn't been fully realized. But they do pray. Verse 24. It says, and they prayed and said, you, Lord, know the hearts. Basically, tell us what's going to happen. Let the lot fall on who it may, and the lot lot fell on Matthias. And that's how chapter one ends. So as we close, I want to kind of pull us forward, fast forward us to today. What can we learn from Acts chapter one? All right, I I think there's, there's always two groups of people in the room. There's always a group of you that said, look, uh, maybe I'm searching. Maybe I'm not. But I'm I'm not a believer. I wouldn't consider myself saved. I'm just I'm, I'm still in that searching phase. So if that's you, I want to talk to you right now and tell you that God loves you. And, and I and I don't just say that flippantly. Like I I mean that. After the sin of Adam and Eve, humanity, all of us, me, you, everybody, was dead in our sin. No no possibility of communing with a perfect God, the God of the universe. But the Creator sent His Son. Jesus, down to humanity. He lived a sinless life. He hung on a cross to make a way, to pay the sacrifice for our sins and make a way where we could now commune with God. So that's this idea. We throw this term around, being saved. And if you're not a church person, being saved sounds really weird. What do I, I mean, we don't think it does because we're so used to hearing it, but what do I need saving from? Like I'm doing perfectly fine over here. I don't know what you're talking about. All, all being saved means is that you believe. I believe that Jesus died. He rose again. I know I'm in need of a savior. I know I'm a sinner. And I know that he is the one who paved the way for me to have a relationship with God. Like that's what it means to be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, because if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses. And is saved. And then for those of you who are sitting here today and you're like, look, I'm a a Christian. I've committed my life to Jesus. I'm I'm saved. Let me me challenge you with a couple things. The first is this idea of being a witness. Does your life look like that of a witness for Christ? Not not only in word, what you say, but also in deed. Like, let, let me just even use the term more bluntly. When is the last time you were a witness? When's the last time you told someone about the beauty of the cross? And here's the thing. Here's the beauty of of God. If it's been a while, don't feel like a failure. Start today. Like God never wants you to walk out of those doors, just be like, oh, I can't do this. What he wants you to do is walk out those doors and say, man, I haven't prayed. I haven't relied on the Lord. I haven't been walking with him. And that's going to start today. If you ever leave a church and you feel like a loser, then something didn't connect. Because that's not not how you should feel. You should say, "I, I know now I need to rely on him more than ever because he is where the power is. So start today. Say, look, Lord, I don't feel like being a witness. I don't want to be a witness, but I know I need to be. Like, I'm so far away from you. I don't feel like it. Draw me back to you. I need the power that you gave your disciples. And the the, the term power to me seems so weird when I first read it. Like, why do we even need power? Like, Bobby, you will get power. It just seems, it sounds weird until you realize it's synonymous with the Holy Spirit and the powerful things that he is going to do in your life. Not only the change that's going to take place in your life, but the strength that he's going to give you to carry the gospel to your workplace, to your neighborhood, to your city, and even to the ends of the earth. So think about your life as we close. Would you characterize your life as powerful? Would you, would you do, does it, do you believe that you have the power? I'm not talking about power and might in the world's eyes. I'm talking about a powerful God moving in your life and causing you to do things and say things that you didn't even think were possible. Like we'll see next week, this group of believers in the upper room and they will receive the power of the Holy Spirit and the contrast of who they were before and who they were after is indescribable. Before they got the Holy Spirit, they were scared little men that ran when Jesus was arrested. They were. And in a few short months, like they would seriously, they would change the world and the way the world viewed the story of, like they would take it to the ends of the earth. All but one of them would die for their faith. I have a map I pulled out just because I wanted you to see what we're going to see over the next six months. This is all of the disciples and where they were killed as they took the gospel to the ends of the earth. Peter and Paul were both killed by Emperor Nero. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified. Matthew was beheaded in Ethiopia. Philip was stoned in Greece. Thomas went the furthest. He went all the way to India, but he was also killed. Bartholomew was beheaded near Turkey. Both Jameses were killed in Jerusalem. One was stoned, the other beheaded. Simon the Zealot went to Persia, where he was killed for refusing to worship the sun god. Judas, the son of James, was beaten to death near Pakistan. And even Matthias, this last guy who just got added to the mix, lucky him, right? He died a martyr's death. Scholars say he died among cannibals in what is now the country of Georgia. Only one, John, didn't die a martyr's death, and he probably wished he had at some point. Because if you read what the scholars say about him, I mean, at one point, he was put into a a, a, um, a vat of oil in Rome. And I mean, the things that he went through, his exile on the island of Patmos, and That's how they lived. The Holy Spirit changed them forever. And you can't forget that they were sons and brothers and husbands and fathers. And I mean, they had families who loved them. And a lot of times their families weren't with them. Most people believe when Peter was crucified that his wife was crucified right next to him. Like this, this is what they did. This is who they were. They gave it all up so people could hear about Jesus. And little did they know here in chapter one, as they're all huddled together in this little room, they had no idea what the future would hold. We have the beauty of seeing the whole picture. They had no idea. They had no idea, you know, the adventures, the, the, the trials, the things that would happen and where they would end up. And I wonder if they would have gone to such lengths if they didn't have the power of the Holy Spirit. Not a chance. Because sometimes we need the power to overcome the fear. All the time, we need the power to overcome the fear, to remind us what life is really about. You ever thought about what it would be like to actually go to the ends of the earth? I'll never forget when Buff and Sissy moved to Atlantic City, which is not quite the end of the earth, but it feels like it sometimes um, if you've ever been to Atlantic City. But we were, we were good friends, and we'd hang out with Buff and Sissy a lot. Um, and I remember Buff, his normal emotional self, he, you know, when we were saying our goodbyes, we were at his house, he came to me, he was like, look, I'm not saying goodbye. You know, he's got tears running down his face. I'm not saying goodbye. Just saying, I'll see you later. And it was tough. We have another friend, Caitlin, who grew up with Courtney in the same hometown, best friends, room together in college. Probably eight years ago, Caitlin moved to India to do missions. She did you know anybody there who just felt like, you know what? Feel like the Lord is calling me to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so she moved. And interestingly, through a series of only God-ordained circumstances, she actually met a missionary of ours named Jojo. And so a lot of you might know Jojo, who we support. Well, Caitlin is his other half. Um, and I can't tell you the number of times we'll be sitting in the living room, sitting on the couch, sitting in bed at night. And Courtney will be on her phone, and I'll look over, and she's got tears running down her eyes. She's reading a text, and she just says, you know what? I miss her. Like I know she did what she was supposed to do. I know she took the gospel where she was supposed to take the gospel. But part of her, just a small part, wishes she was back here in Tampa. But sometimes the gospel calls us to do things that we never thought we'd do. Even something simple, like me being a preacher. Who'd have ever thought? (laughs) Not anybody who ever knew me 10 years ago. But that's how God moves. And I'm excited to see as one of your pastors what God does in the life of our church through this book of Acts. And I would love nothing more for them to, us to cry out to him and ask him to move in a mighty way. Courtney sent me a, a screenshot of Jackie Hill Perry. Who's a, she does a lot of things, poet, spoken word and stuff. But at the, right at the end of the new year, or last year, like right at the end of December, she posted something on her Instagram and she said this, the only thing I regret about this decade is that I didn't pray more during it. You know, prayer is the means by which the purposes of God are accomplished in the world. Like it truly changes everything. I'm going to leave you guys today with a story, my, my favorite story ever on prayer. But, but I hope that it challenges you. Some of you might have heard me say this before, but it, 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 I hope it challenges you. It challenges me to pray. I want you, I want 2020 to be a time, a year, a decade where prayer truly changes who you are. All right, let me read the story. It involves a man named Doug Coe, who has a ministry in Washington, D.C., that mostly involves people in politics and statecraft. Well, Doug became acquainted with Bob, an insurance salesman, who was completely unconnected with any government circles. Bob became a Christian and began to meet with Doug to learn about his new faith. One day, Bob came in all excited about a statement in the Bible where Jesus says, ask whatever you will in my name and you shall receive it. Is that really true, Bob demanded? Doug explained, well, it's not really a blank check. You have to take it in context, You, you know, understand all the teachings of scripture. But, but yes, it is true. Jesus really does answer prayer. Great, Bob said that I'm gonna start praying. I think I'm gonna pray for Africa. That's kind of a broad target. Why don't you narrow it down to one country, Doug advised. All right, I'll pray for Kenya do you know anyone in Kenya? Doug asked. Nope. Ever been to Kenya? Nope. But Bob wanted to pray for Kenya. So Doug made an unusual arrangement. He challenged Bob to pray every day for six months for Kenya. If Bob would do that and nothing extraordinary happened, Doug would pay him $500. But if something remarkable did happen, Bob would pay Doug $500. And if Bob did not pray every day, the whole deal was off. It was a pretty unusual arrangement But then Doug is a creative guy. So Bob began to pray. And for a long while, nothing happened. Then one night, he was at a dinner in Washington. The people around the table explained what they did for a living. And one woman said she helped run an orphanage in Kenya, the largest of its kind. Bob saw $500 suddenly sprout wings and begin to fly away. (laughs) But he could not keep quiet. He roared to life. He had not said much up until this point, but now he pounded her relentlessly, question after question. You're obviously very interested in my country, the woman said to Bob, overwhelmed by his sudden barrage. "Have you been to Kenya before? Nope. You know someone in Kenya? Nope. Then how do you happen to be so curious? Well, someone is kind of paying me $500, long story. So she asked Bob if he would like to come visit Kenya and tour the orphanage. Bob was so eager to go, he would have left that very night if he could. When Bob arrived in Kenya, he was appalled by the poverty, the, basic, the lack of basic health care. And upon returning to Washington, he couldn't get this place out of his mind. He began to write to them, to large pharmaceutical companies, describing to them the vast need he had seen. He reminded them that every year they would throw away large amounts of medical supplies that went unsold. Why not send them to this place in Kenya, he asked. And some of them did. This orphanage received more than a million dollars worth of medical supplies. The woman called Bob and said, Bob, this is amazing. We've had the most phenomenal gifts because of the letters you wrote. We would like to fly you back over and have a big party. Will you come? So Bob flew back to Kenya. And while he was there, the president of Kenya came to the celebration because it was the largest orphanage in the country and offered to take Bob on a tour of Nairobi, the capital city. In the course of the tour, they saw a prison. And Bob asked about the groups of prisoners there. They're political prisoners, he was told. That's a bad idea, Bob said brightly. You should let them out. Bob finished the tour and flew back home and sometime later received a call from the State Department of the United States government. Is this Bob? Yes. Were you recently in Kenya? Yes. Did you make any statements to the president about political prisoners? Yes. What did you say? I told him he should let them out. The State Department officially explained that the department had been working for years to get the release of these prisoners to no avail. Normal diplomatic channels and political maneuverings had led to a dead end. But now the prisoners had been released and the State Department was calling to stay thanks. Several months later, the president of Kenya made a phone call to Bob. He was going to rearrange his government and select a new cabinet. Would Bob be willing to fly over and pray for him for three days while he worked on this very important task? So Bob, who was not politically connected at all, boarded a plane once more and flew back to Kenya where he prayed and asked God to give wisdom for the leader of the nation as he selected his government. All this happened because one man got out of the boat. Now I ask you, what's impossible for God? Doesn't he deserve our best? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Acts chapter one. Lord, I think it's going to be a fun six months. Lord, we just thank you for the truth that is found in your word. Lord, thank you for the fact that we can come and we can learn about you, Lord. We can be convicted by your spirit, Lord, but just leave encouraged. Lord, just ready for a new year, a new decade, Lord, a decade where we're going to change maybe some of the behaviors and the spiritual disciplines that, that we encountered in the last decade. Lord, this is a new start, a fresh start for so many, and I just pray that we would take advantage. Lord, that we would pray, we would pray diligently, we would cry out to you, Lord, because we know that with you lies power. Lord, we love you so much, and we thank you for who you are. In your name, amen.